We live in an unprecedented era of tennis genius. Oh, that is unbelievable. And it just keeps on getting better. Oh, what a scorching return. Analysis, debate, and exclusive interviews. Can you believe it? This is the Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. Welcome, and where do we start? The first week of Wimbledon could barely have been more eventful. Nadal's nightmare, Federer's fright, and Murray's match against the clock, all on the menu, as well as Shvedova's golden set, and so much more here on Tennis Weekly. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. Former pro and now one of everybody's favourite commentators, Robbie Koenig, is with me this week, and... um, Robbie, do you remember a first week at Wimbledon as spectacular as the one we've had? No, I don't. Um, it's been unbelievable, Adam. So much as so many different storylines that have unfolded over the course of the last uh, six and a half days. It's been uh, this. You know, I've been involved in commentating for I don't know how long now. How many matches I've commentated on in tournaments, but uh, it's just something for everybody. And it's been on both sides of the draw. It's not like it's been exclusive to the men or the women. And I saw Pam Shriver, who's been in the, the media business a lot longer than I have in the commentating game. And she was saying in the 34 years that she's been coming to Wimbledon as a commentator, let alone a player, she's never seen a first week at Wimbledon like this. Let's start with the most recent of the dramatic events. And that's Murray's late night sprint to beat the clock. 7-5-3-6-7-5-6-1 against Marcos Bagdatis. And there's an 11 o'clock curfew set by the local council. Now, he missed it. The match didn't finish until 2 past 11, but everybody seemed to be happy for it to finish at that point, apart from Baghdatis, you would have thought. Um, And I heard, Robbie, from the Wimbledon chief executive Richard Lewis earlier, and he failed to rule out the possibility of the match continuing, even if Baghdatis had made it 5-2 after 11 o'clock, which sounds a bit strange. What did you make of it all? Yeah, I I don't know all the rules of uh, what the deal is with the Merton Council and how strict they are about enforcing it. Uh, sometimes I think common sense has got to prevail. And when you're at the tail end of a match like that, I think you've got to have a little bit of latitude. So I think uh, given that the you know it wasn't five all in the third or five all in the fourth where anything could have happened, different story. But the fact that Murray was so far ahead, it was good to see them uh, kind of uh, making a, an executive decision. We knew the match was going to finish pretty shortly, whether it was at 11 o'clock on the dot or whether it was at uh, 10 past 11. I don't think it was the end of the world. So once again... The club has got it spot on as far as I'm concerned. Yes, and Murray was certainly pleased to have get the match wrapped up in time. They had it on the screen where they show the score and it said even if the match is, you know, hasn't finished, we can't play past 11 o'clock. So I thought, you know, when I got up at 4-1, I tried not to sit down. I, I asked and I said, have we got one more game? He said, yeah. And then obviously I broke and I thought we were, we were done. So I was glad uh, they let us go a few more minutes. Robbie, how well do you think Andy Murray played? He played solidly. Out of 10, I'd probably give him about a seven and a half. It's a different story early on in the, the tournament. You know, it's all about negotiating your way through the minefield that is week one at a major. And I think he's done that well. So he's ticked all the boxes. But you've got to save your best tennis for the tail end of the tournament. And I want to see him playing even more aggressively than what he was playing. That's going to be key. It's something we harp on about. But we've seen that in order to beat the very best players in the world, that's the kind of game you've got to employ. You've got to go out there and win majors and not hope that uh, your opponents lose them for you. So that's got to be the mindset for Andy. No, but Baghdatis did lose it for him, didn't he, in the fourth set? He was woeful, just rolled over. Yeah, a little bit. 
But I'm talking about when you get to the tail end of week number two, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always been one of Marcus's, I think, Achilles. You know, he's never been one of the fittest guys out there. And sometimes when I look at Marcus at the end of matches, especially matches that he's lost, he's got this, let's have a little conversation at the net. Uh, I'm your best buddy and hugs and all around, which looks nice for the general public. But sometimes that tells me you're a little bit soft. I want to see a guy when he shakes hands to be really hurting. And yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes I don't see that from... Uh, you want him to show his teeth a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Well, what was going on with Andy Murray's pockets as well? I mean, the commentator Chris Bradnam came out with a great line. He said, <laughs> with $20.5 million of prize money, you would have thought he'd have deeper pockets. But, OK, that happens occasionally. But to happen so many times in the same match, what was going on there? No, listen, and it's not the first time it's happened either, Adam. I've seen it... Uh... At a lot of the Masters 1000s, I mean, he gets annoyed. And sometimes he does just pull at his pockets. Uh, I don't know, maybe his legs have got so big over the last couple of uh, months from uh, working out in the gym that there's not enough space inside his pants. But it's definitely not the first time I've seen it happen. So uh, maybe that's a, a little a calling card for the boys at Adidas to either make them baggier. But mind you, and maybe Kim likes it tight. So that's why Andy's going to start to I'm going to stop you there, Robbie. We don't want to go too far into that. Let's move on to what we're all doubtlessly aware of and the fact that the bottom half of the draw is completely wide open now because of Rafael Nadal's shocking loss to Lucas Rossol, the 26-year-old Czech and world number 100. 6-7, 6-4, 6-4, 2-6, 6-4. He was typically gracious in defeat. You know that the, the bad thing of this is anything that I will say now will will sound against me. So it's not the right moment for me to say what what happened out there because it's gonna sound uh, an excuse, and I never want to put an excuse after a match like today. But the umpire said that a few things weren't <laughs> weren't right. Before this year, Robbie, he had lost all five of his previous Wimbledon matches, Russell, which all came in the first round of qualifying. Can you put into words how he managed to do this? It's inexplicable, isn't it, when you see him put on a performance like that. But uh, I got to see Lucas play a little earlier this season uh, in Doha, and I was commentating for that event. Yeah, you were over there, weren't you? Yeah, and, and whilst he was a good ball striker, you could see there were lots of gaps in his game, very much hit and miss. So that's probably why... You're not going to see him come through quarries. Too many inconsistencies in his game. And I promise you, guys between 100 and 300 know how to play the sport. The depth in men's tennis is incredible. But what you saw on Santa Court and Wimbledon, you might not see for a long, long time. Everything just came together for you know almost four hours there for Russell. And people who, who watch the game and who know the game and have been around the game for a long, long time, Everybody was waiting for the guy to fold, and of course it didn't happen. And, you know, especially having watched him play on a few occasions before and seen seen all the inconsistencies in his game, I was certainly top of that list, expecting this guy just to fold like a a stack of cards. But it wasn't forthcoming, and I think everybody was thinking the same thing at the same time. But the guy just proved us all wrong. Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it, at the time I scored it? Did you get to see a fair bit of it as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw Lucas Rossol earlier this year, just like you. I was commentating on the match, and I believe he hadn't won a main draw match in two months. And you just contrast what happened the other night with that. You just think it can't be the same player, but he was just so emotionless, just a powerhouse, like Terminator, he felt like, especially at the end where he just seemed to be completely in the zone in that final game where he yep. wrapped it up to love with an ace, was just typical of how he performed for the previous few hours. Yeah, it was almost like he was on autopilot, like you said. I mean, for me, the ice was just coursing through his veins. And um, 
the manner in which he was able to do it and not on just any center court. We're not talking about center court here at Cincinnati or in Toronto. We're talking about center court at Wimbledon, one of the toughest places to play for the first time. And uh, from ball number one, I was commentating that match with Wayne Ferreira. The guy had a swagger about him. What can Rafa's future opponents learn about how Rossell beat him? When you know, when you get their chest out and stomach in and show them that you've come to play, not too many niceties, uh, respect, but you've got to be in their grill. And I think we saw to perhaps a slightly lesser extent yesterday when um, a Serena, a Serena Williams was in action against Xi Jing. Jing wasn't prepared to back down. You know, she was uh, going hammer and tongs at it with uh, Serena. But so often, players um, almost have too much respect for a for a legend or a high-ranked player. But when you step on the court, you cannot do that. Even if you've got to fake it for as long as you possibly can, that is always the key for me, Adam. <laughs> to fake it. Sometimes you've got to fake it to make it. What did, they say. did you ever do that successfully? It was difficult when you're five foot nothing, you know. <laughs> the following night... Federer was just two points away from joining Nadal in the champion's dustbin against fellow 30-year-old Julian Beneteau, the Bradley Cooper look-alike. And he pulled through in the end, Federer, 4-6-6-7-6-2-7-6-6-1 as the Frenchman struggled with his fitness after the disappointment of losing the fourth set tiebreak. And the six-time champion was fully aware of how close he was to being dumped out. Yeah, it was a tough match. Oh, my God, it was brutal. Um, obviously, a bit of luck maybe on my side, who knows. Um, but I tried hard. I fought uh, till the very end and... Uh, Obviously, he was hurt, uh, I guess, uh, in some ways in the fifth set. But, uh, you know, I tried in the third, fourth and fifth just to stay alive and come back. And I really started well in the third, which gave me a lift, obviously. And in the fourth, it was just so close. So um, I'm very fortunate. Um, obviously, Julian was playing amazing. I've lost him. I don't know. I think the last time we played against each other in Paris-Bercy. So I knew uh, it was going to be a difficult match. And he played so well. Um, he was making me doubt, obviously, for most of the match. And uh, uh, that's credit to him, really. He played a... Yeah, he just played amazing, I thought. Honestly speaking, did you feel he was a goner? I did. I thought that uh, uh, he might get a little tight uh, towards the tail end of that tiebreaker in the fourth set. And you know, I'm surprised so few people drew parallels between what happened on that day with what happened at uh, Roland Garros in 2009, when, of course, Rafa lost to Robin Soderling yeah. and then Roger almost lost to Tommy Haas. He was down... Two sets to love, and I think uh, I'm not sure it was close to match point or break point for Tommy Haas to serve for the match. And of course, exactly uh, the same sort of scenario here at Wimbledon, where Rafa had lost, and then of course Roger down two sets to love on the brink of going out. And for me, it was glaringly obvious. And I thought this time, though, um, Benito has beaten him before. He knows what it takes to get the job done. Loves playing on grass. Felt so comfortable out there. I did think that the Frenchman was going to cause a uh, Another upset. Yeah, it would have been Federer's first Grand Slam exit before the quarterfinals since 2003. Now, I started to generate a conspiracy theory here uh, about the fact that it was just Federer trying to show Rafa how to win a five-setter. But do you think being pushed so hard will actually do him some good? No, I think us guys in the media kind of just uh, like to make stories about that, myself included. <laughs> Listen, when you can take a straight set win, you'll take it every single day of the week. I think... You know, Federer's five-set record is very poor. I think coming into that match, it was maybe 18 wins, 16 losses. So it shows you when players are able to take Roger close, when they're able to keep the score nice and tight, 
more often than not, they're almost able to get the better of him. And that's why I was so adamant. Benito had a, a very good chance, almost more than a, a 50% chance of getting the W. Well, I believe anyway that he would have been inspired, Benito that is, by what happened the previous night from Rasol. Well, Federer's embarrassingly kind draw sees him face Melise next, then either Istamin or Yuzhny if he makes it to the quarters. Let's move on then to Novak Djokovic. He's the man we've all forgotten about amongst all this. He's had no major scares, though he did drop the first set against Radek Stepanek. But he was never going to lose to him. He serenely has gone about his business. And, um, well, what have you made of his progress so far? Yeah, I called that match against Stepanek, and you're exactly right. I mean, he should never have lost that first set. In fact, he played twice uh, fewer points on serve than what Stepanek did, so it shows you how much Stepanek was struggling with his service game versus uh, Novak. And he's been in cruise control, played uh, great tennis against uh, Ryan Harrison. And you know what he's so good at? He's so good at playing the big points well. I think he saved uh, six or seven set points in one of the games there. He's in uh, a different league at the moment as far as I'm concerned. I thought he was so unlucky not to beat Nadal in Rome and in the French Open. I think fate intervened there for Nadal, first with a bad call in Rome, then with the weather in uh, Roland Garros. I like everything that he's doing. He's hitting his backhand well. He's comfortable with his moving after a couple of games. Uh, The mental fortitude is right where it needs to be. So Djokovic will go on to batter his fellow Serb, Troitsky, for the 12th time in a row, I'm sure, in the fourth round. And then it'll either be Richard Gasquet or Florian Meyer in the last eight. Now it's time for Adam Hunt to navigate us through the rest of the men's draw. Week one of the men's draw is always packed full of storylines and this year was no different. It was a bad week for the Aussies though as both their hopefuls crashed out in the first round. There were plenty of come on mates and a few broken rackets but neither the rising star Bernard Tomic nor the former champion Leighton Hewitt could find their best tennis. Remarkably it was the first time no Aussie men had made it through to the second round for a full 70 years. Elsewhere the fairy tale story of the week was provided by the American qualifier Brian Baker. Having been forced out of the game through various injuries for the best part of seven years, the Nashville native has gone from being unranked to inside the world's top 100 in less than 12 months. Baker raced through three rounds of qualifying to claim his place in the main draw and then made short work of Rui Machado, Jaco Niemann and Benoit Pair to reach the fourth round in his first appearance at the All England Club. This is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast. So Andy Roddick, he raced out of the blocks but couldn't maintain it against Ferrer and at the end he blew a goodbye kiss or that's how it seemed to me. Is that how you read it, Robbie? Yes, pretty much. Um, Again, I was uh, doing the comms for that one and that was kind of the feeling I got. I think maybe one more return to Wimbledon will be at the Olympics but uh, he is definitely on a slide. I didn't see the kind of fight that I'm used to seeing from Roddick towards the tail end of that match. He's not a guy who wants to be losing in the second and third rounds of tournaments. You know, he's at a certain age now. He has been so good for the last decade or so. And, you know, happily married. Maybe a good time to start a family for Andy. That's exactly what my thoughts were. Well, did you blow a kiss to the ground after your last Wimbledon seven years ago? (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't. Um, Mine was a very low-key event. And uh, it's... uh, Certainly not in the same league as Rod. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure pretty much everybody got that feeling but, uh, that Andy might be done. Well, what it does do is set up a mouth-watering fourth-round clash between David Ferrer and Juan Martín del Potro. How do you see that one going? It is going to be a nip and tuck, and if I was a betting man, I'd be very scared to put my money on anyone. I'm going to push you, though. You've got to go somewhere. Yeah, no, I will. Um, I've probably, at the end of the day, I'm going to enjoy the firepower of del Potro a little bit more on the surface. 
Uh, I've watched him play a fair bit this season, and I think he's uh, pretty close to playing uh, some of his best tennis. The only thing that concerns me is his movement. But saying that, I think the courts have dried out a little bit more. You've got a lot more dust on the back of the courts. They've worn. His footing is going to be better, and I think that's going to help him. I think he's just going to have uh, a few too many free points in his locker versus his opponents. And over the course of five sets, I think that's going to be a telling factor. I'm going with Ferrer. I've been I've been doing my homework on this, though. But I've been a bit of a geek. And David Ferrer, he's won two grass court titles, both at Setogenbosch, whereas Del Potro, the furthest he's ever got on grass is the semifinals of a tournament. And who did he get beat by there? David Ferrer. Yep. I just feel Ferrer is playing inspired tennis, as he has done for so long now. This is the amazing thing about Ferrer. You can't help but love his determination because he's just keeping such a strong level of performance up for months and months. He's already won four titles this year. Yep. So I'm going to give him just about the edge. Just El Potro isn't quite at the level he was. Good, so you're going to give me odds on that one, obviously. Well, there's not going to be any money involved, I'm afraid, because I don't have any. But uh, <laughs> if you want to chuck me a fiver if I'm right, feel free. Absolutely, you're on. Yeah. Right, Sam Query, he knocked out Milos Reinic in the third round, which was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, but then he couldn't go any further because he ended up losing 17-15 in the fifth to Marin Cilic in a match that was rather overlooked because of what was going on on centre court. But still, Marin Cilic is high in confidence after his Queen's title, even though he won that in bizarre fashion, isn't he? Great to see. You know, I'm pretty good friends with Marin and Bob Brett. And after everything that he's been through this uh, year with all the injuries, uh, problems with his knees, and that he's uh, finally been able to come back and play such good tennis. I'm so happy for the guy, one of the nicest guys on the tour. And you know what? I'm I'm glad to see... Sam Query back playing some good tennis as well because he's been through his fair share of injuries as well. So for me, whilst a lot of people looked at that match as, well, well, it's tough for somebody to lose, I thought it was a win-win situation for both those guys. Both of them back healthy, playing great tennis. What a titanic struggle that was, and I'm very happy for both of them. I think we're going to see good things from both of them in the summer coming forward. Yeah, I agree. I think they both look near to their best, if not at their best. And Chilich as well impressed me with his mental strength because that has let him down in the past. But coming back from dropping two sets and then serving second in the final set, which for me is a big disadvantage, to overcome that, I think he did excellently. He faces Andy Murray in the next round. Is that Andy's biggest threat so far, do you think? Uh, no, not really. I think uh, Andy's going to be able to deal with Marin pretty comfortably. That's uh, my gut feel. I haven't had a look at the head-to-head yet. Murray's been playing too well this this year in general. He's won enough matches. I think he's just going to be too strong for Marin. Sometimes I think Marin it does get a, a little soft when I'm looking at him up against the very best players in the world, say the top four guys. He's going to have to serve exceptionally well. Let's wrap up the men's draw then. There's Marty Fish, um, some positive victories for him after his heart problems. Brian Baker, well, he's got a heartwarming tale as well. Started the year at 458 in the world was only recently playing in the Middle Tennessee Tennis League, but he finds himself in the fourth round of Wimbledon. He has Philip Kohlschreiber as well, so an excellent chance to make the quarters. Now, let's go back to the start of the week, because the shock started on the very first day when Thomas Burdick, who was many people's tip as, a, as an outside bet for the title, he was knocked out by Ernest Gulbis in three tiebreaks, who went on himself, the Latvian, to lose to Jerzy Janovic in the second round. He's such an irritating player, Robbie, Ernest Gulbis, because he's so talented, but he just won't maintain the level long enough to make an impact anywhere. Well, it just goes to show you how important the mental side of sport is. You can have all the strokes, all the weapons, 
But if you don't have it between the ears, um, you're never going to be able to perform consistently over the course of a season, over the course of a career. And for a long time, we could say a similar sort of thing about Thomas Burdick because uh, he was cut from a similar sort of cloth. Now, considering that nobody left in the bottom half of the draw has ever made a Wimbledon final, who are you picking as your men's finalist? Well, it's a it's a good question, but I think um, it's going to be the time of Joe Wilfred Songa. I like the way he's been playing, I think. What I've seen from him throughout the course of the season has been very positive. I think he's going to take a lot out of that loss from Novak Djokovic. I think it's not going to be debilitating. In fact, I think it's going to be motivating. He's going to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And I think we're going to see him in the finals of Wimbledon taking on uh, the world number one, uh, the Serbian Novak Djokovic. In a repeat of the Australian Open final four years ago. And who's going to win? Novak is going to win in four or five sets. I think it's got the makings of a classic. This is a bit scary, but I absolutely agree with you. Novak Djokovic in four sets over Songa for me as well. How about that? Good. Yeah, but you've got, uh, obviously got very good tennis knowledge. <laughs> Cheers. The Tennis Weekly Podcast with Adam Bates. The world number one, Maria Sharapova, most people's favourite, according to our unscientific survey on Tennis Weekly last week. She's dropped just one set to the grass lover Svetlana Pironkova, but has largely been untroubled. Um, do you think she's lining herself up well for another stab at the title? Yes, most certainly. I think the surface suits her game style the best. I think the feel-good factor here at Wimbledon is right up there for her. Obviously, winning her first major on the lawns of the All England Tennis Club uh, holds a special place in her heart. And I think after winning the French Open, the amount of confidence that's given her on probably her least favourite surface, well, uh, the confidence is sky high at the moment. Very difficult to see her uh, getting beat this uh, this fortnight. But Serena was pushed all the way, wasn't she? Having to serve 23 aces, which is a new Wimbledon record, to get past Zhang Zhe 9-7, in the third set and she says it's not always the best thing to breeze through the early rounds it was good to win that i needed a tough match like that and she's always playing me incredibly well so i was happy to get through it well i thought third set definitely want to go out with a bang i'm just fighting everything and playing her she's playing unbelievable on grass and so i'm just doing the best that i can robbie i just love the reaction of serena williams at the end of the match she was leaping about come on ing and she just wants it so badly and you can't help but be enamored by that yeah, that's what amazes me so often about champions, their desire and their hunger, despite the fact that they've won multiple Grand Slams. They're never satisfied with what they've got. And I mean, if I was ever in those shoes, after you've won four or five, you think, well, you know, I've pretty much done a lot. Do I really need to give 100% effort day in and day out? But that's why they are where they are. And that's why I'm where I am. I've got so much respect that they can come out and compete so hard day in and day out. And, of course, that's what you get when uh, Serena Williams takes to the court. And I think you're right, Adam. The reaction at the end of the match said it all. And I think she was lucky that the serve was on because they played in tough conditions and uh, her groundies were all over the place. Jing was returning particularly well, but the serve was just a little too good for her at the end of the day. Yeah, that's probably just about the difference, isn't it? Because Jean Jay was taking the ball on the rise. She's got a compact swing and she was attacking but yeah, Serena just about had enough power on the serve to break through. So she's got Shvedova next, who we'll talk about in just a little while with good reason as well. But first, the defending champion Petra Kvitova, she was a little nervy early on against Akul Amanmuradova in the first round. But she sprinted through her other matches, dropping just one game against Lepchenko in round three. And she's almost gone under the radar, hasn't she? 
Yeah, because I think um, 2012 hasn't been a, a great season for her. Well, basically, since she won Wimbledon last year, she, of course she won the season-ending championships, but she hasn't been front and centre like somebody like Maria Sharapova. And I think, in a way, she's probably enjoying that. Of course, you always, I always speak about that feel-good factor. And for her, it's also going to be very high here. And I know, as a player, when you come back to a place of former glories, there's uh, just that, that X factor that uh, enables you to get an extra 10 or 15% out of your game. And I think that's what we're going to see in week number two from Petra. What was that tournament for you? Um, I had two of them. Uh, one was in the States, was Washington, D.C., very hot and humid. And I grew up playing in those conditions. I had yeah. success in Washington. So that was one of them. And the other one was uh, Kitzbühel in Austria. I enjoyed playing in the altitude and it really suited my game. And I had early success there. And year upon year, it was good. And actually, U.S. Open was another tournament for me, probably of the majors. That was the one that paid the most bills over the course of my career. <laughs> well, now you're paying most of them by your commentary work, and fine it is too. So Kvitova has Skiavoni next. They're meeting for the third time already this year, and we can expect Kvitova to win that one and set up probably a quarterfinal against Serena Williams. Now, wowee, that is a big one. Who would you put your money on there? Well, um, that's a very good question. I'd probably have to go with uh, Kvitova, given... To me, she's looked a little smoother this week. If conditions are perfect, then I'll probably go with Serena. But we've had a lot of wind over the last week. And I think if conditions are a little blustery, I'm going to go with Kvitova to upset uh, the multiple Ooh. Grand Slam champion. What are you going with? No, no, definitely Serena for me. She's yeah. Although she was pushed hard against Zhang Jie, ultimately she's unbeatable for me. Adam Hunt, though, returns to round up the rest of the details in the women's draw. The first week of Wimbledon was kind to the women's seeds, with six of the top eight making it through to the fourth round. But with eight different players winning the last nine Grand Slams, is still anyone's guess who'll claim the spoils next Saturday. Home fans were in for a treat as Heather Watson became the first British woman to make the third round since 1998. And elsewhere, four-time Grand Slam champion Kim Kleisters didn't disappoint in her last appearance at Wimbledon. The Belgian got the better of two seeded players in Jelena Jankovic and Vera Zvonareva to book a date with Angelique Kerber in the last 16. This is a Sky Sports News radio podcast. Yaroslava Shvedova, a woman that many people wouldn't have heard of before the start of this year, but she's backing up her run to the quarterfinals at Roland Garros with a golden set against the finalist in Paris, Sara Irani. She won all 24 points in the first set of her 6-love, six 6-4 six victory. The only other known examples of this was Bill Scanlon in 1983 and Pauline Betts in 1943. And in fact, afterwards, she didn't even realise she'd done it. I had no idea. I was just playing uh, every point in uh, every game. And uh, like I didn't feel like it was every game was 40-love. I remember, like, first or second ball of the second set, uh, she won. And uh, everyone, every, all the people started to, like, clap and, uh, clap and scream. And I was like, what's going on? And I even smiled. I was like, okay. And then uh, in the gym after the match, when I was cooling down, my coach came and he's like, did you know, like, uh, like someone told me, like, this the stats about you not, not losing a point. I was like, Really? Like not making unforced errors or not losing points, like not losing a point. <laughs> this is what I find jaw-dropping because on uh, on a surface like grass, it's so easy to get a bad bounce 
and win a point. It's so easy to get a free point on serve. I mean, you hit the line and the ball checks, and of course your opponent can be early on the shot and then spread into the front row. So the fact that it's happened on a grass court for me is even more mind blowing. So uh, and she wasn't just playing a qualifier or a local wild card; she's playing the world number ten. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? But uh, it's happened, and uh, it's not something that uh, I guess uh, Ronnie wants to be in the record books for. <laughs> no, but she's having a great year anyway, isn't she? So you know, perhaps she'll have to take that blow. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the former world number one, Caroline Wozniacki, was knocked out. Yes, we have to go all the way back to the start of last week to see her exit to Tamira Pasek. Now, this, Robbie, was the best first-round women's match I think I've ever seen at a major. Now, Tamira Pasek, she's coached at the moment by the last man you ever played against in singles as a pro tennis player, if I'm not wrong, Andre Pavel. That's, I tell you what, that's a nice little piece of knowledge well done uh, I respect you for that big time <laughs> but he's such a nice guy and he's a good coach as well he's been with her for uh, not too long in fact I think she was working with Stefan Kubek uh, the former Austrian lefty for uh, a wee while before switching to work with um, work with Andre but I did that match against Wozniacki and she played extremely well oh wasn't it so much fun I couldn't believe it I wasn't expecting something quite that good but it just shows you as well getting wins under your belt, uh, how yeah. important that is. Because I think she's won two matches this year coming into Eastbourne. And, of course, she wins Eastbourne. is feeling like a million bucks. And then a tough opening round. And she deals with uh, Wozniacki in the best possible fashion. She showed no sign of nerves. Kept going for her shots when it really mattered. And whilst uh, Wozniacki might have been a little vulnerable, especially in the early rounds of a major, um, she didn't allow a Wozniacki to get a foothold in the match. Well, just like against Fosniaki and Kerber at Eastbourne in the final, she narrowly squeezed past Janina Wickmeyer after being on the brink to book her meeting with Roberta Vinci. So we should expect her to make even more progress, I think, there against the Italian, don't you? Well, perhaps um, it's going to be tough. I tell you what, uh, Vinci is a crafty little player. She's got a very good um, uh, all-court sense, very cerebral player. She's got a great volley, which translates very well on this surface as well. So despite the fact that Vinci might not be one of the top 16 seeds, uh, be careful there because I think that could be a potential banana peel for Tamira Pasek if she underestimates uh, Vinci. Yeah, you're right. She hasn't dropped a set yet, so she's always going to be a danger. Now, Azarenka, the world number two, she's not dropped a set so far. She's up against Ivanovic next. Uh, a potential title winner for you, Azarenka? No question about that. She's also another one that's just been uh, flying under the radar, but I haven't heard too much spoken about her. No, you can say that again. She wasn't even requested for a press conference after a third-round win over Sepulova. There you go. And uh, I think uh, I watched Anna play yesterday. I called her match against Julia Gorges, and uh, she played solidly. Perhaps being the underdog going into that match against Azarenka might help Anna to play without the shackles on. That's how I I think she plays her best tennis. A big fan of her coach, Nigel Sears, who's done a great job with her over the last uh, almost 12, uh, 12 months now. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think, on the WTA Tour when you can hear what the coaches are saying to the players and you can tell that she does absorb every word that Nigel Sears says, which isn't always the case, is it? No, especially some of those Eastern European girls. Uh, they almost have full-on arguments with the coach yeah. when he comes on the court. And, of course, very important, no eye contact. Yeah, that's right. that's right. Sometimes you wonder why on earth are they bringing their coach onto court when they don't want to listen. They just bicker with them. I tell you what, if if my charge spoke to me like uh, some of those players speak to their coaches, I'd almost want to give them the five point plan, which is a good old fashioned hiding. 
sorry, go elaborate on that. What's the five point plan? The five point plan is um, when I give my son or daughter a good old fashioned hiding on the bottom with the hand. <laughs> so that's why it's called the five point plan. Oh, I see. Right. Sorry, I was being a bit. I think you guys there. call it a spanking here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Nice one. Well, talking of here, just put your union flag hat on for a moment. Heather Watson. She put in convincing performances to reach round three, but I think the golfing class between a player at her kind of level and those at the very top of the game was exemplified and exploited by Radvanska, wasn't it? Yeah, she's uh, she's an incredible talent, is uh, Agnieszka. In fact, again, in Doha this year, I was asking the question whether she could ever be a top five in the world, and I doubted it, given that she didn't have any major weapons. But uh, again, such a cerebral player is uh, the pole just knows her way around a tennis court to anticipation, her court craft. She's got everything. I tell you what, I love the attitude of Heather Watson every time she takes to the court. That's why we're going to see her be a, a pretty solid performer over the years. Right now, for me, she obviously doesn't have the firepower to be a, perhaps a top 10 player. But I've always said in life that your attitude determines your altitude. And Heather Watson's attitude is outstanding. And she manages to charm the crowd just with that golden smile. Now, Kim Kleisters, she's somebody else who's, um, well, somebody that many people are following in the draw because of all her injury problems and the fact that she'll be retiring. But she's fended off those injuries so far in the past week. She hasn't dropped a set so far, even though she got a retirement in her favour against Von Raver. But her next opponent is Angelique Kerber. It doesn't get much tougher than that at the moment, does it? So what's your prediction there? Well, the lefty has been outstanding. She's... um... Never easy to play against. She's playing with a lot of confidence. Um, I think Kerber's going to get the better of Kleisters. I watched Kleisters' first match against Jankovic, and um, Kim's movement was uh, pretty laboured there. I haven't seen the other two matches. I didn't see the retirement against uh, Zvonareva, and I didn't see her second-round match, and I don't know how well she's moving. But I tell you what, Kerber will do a good job of uh, testing her movement, getting her going from side to side. And she's another player with excellent court craft, not the biggest weapons, but she knows how to use the full dimensions of the court so well. I think Kerber is going to go through there, Adam. And do you think she can potentially make the final? Who are your finalists? Uh, as far as the, the women are concerned, I think uh, Maria Sharapova is going to lock horns uh, once again with Serena Williams. Yep, that's exactly what I'm going for again. I'm a little bit worried by this, but I do think Serena will, will win. What about you? I don't. I think uh, Maria's going to win. I think uh, Maria's uh, playing with more confidence than what uh, Serena is at the moment. I think it's going to be a hard-fought affair, but I think uh, Sharapova's going to do the French Open Wimbledon double. That would be a massive feat against somebody like Serena, but I just feel that she'll have vengeance in her mind after what happened in 2004. (laughs) Eight years ago, I know, but Serena Williams is the kind of character that won't let that drop. Now, any other female players that you want to mention ahead of the second week, Robbie? Obviously, I did call Maria Sharapova to win, but uh, watch out for Kerber getting to the finals. I don't think she's going to win the title, but uh, that's the biggest one for me. As I look down uh, the draw, I tell you, uh, I have been really excited to see come back as Mariana Lucic, mm. was such a, a great junior, but uh, was uh, out of the game for a long, long time. It's now good to see her back playing well, but of course, uh, she lost to Roberto Vinci. But uh, that's pretty much it. Well, have you managed to see anything of Camilla Giorgi yet, the Italian? No, uh, not at all. Mm, I'm rather enticed by her. Yeah, she's the world number 145. She's already beaten two top 20 players in her Mm. compatriot Panetta and also Petrova in the past week. That's after progressing through qualifying. Now, I commentated on her once and she was hopeless, actually. She lost. But I could still kind of see what she was trying to do because she plays like a wasp. Deceptive power 
as somebody who is only five foot six, but she's mentally strong. One thing that impressed me as well was the fact that she hardly celebrated after her win against Petrova, as if to say, I'm not finished yet. Now, she's got Radvanska next, and if I'm going to place an asterisk somewhere in the draw, it's going to be on that match, because I think she might be able to cause an upset. Yeah, I like your reasoning there a lot. Players that do show that kind of attitude when they win, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, realizing that the job is not done yet, not being satisfied with where you are so far in the tournament. Uh, I'll keep an eye on out for now that you've uh, pointed that out. I'm a big fan of Nadia Petrova, and I know how well she plays on this particular surface. So, Yeah, Petrova, a winner on grass uh, in Sertogenbosch just a week or so ago. Now, yes. Mila Giorgi's dad, Sergio, she, he actually said uh, last July it was that she would be a top 50 player within a year. So it was looking unlikely coming into this event, but now you never know. And he's also reportedly trying to emigrate with her to Israel so he can get better funding. But if she goes on a deeper run here, then maybe that'll be unnecessary. So with the schedule out for Monday's play, when all the men's and women's fourth round matches are scheduled to be played, the weather forecast predicts what, Robbie Koenig? Sunshine. Absolutely not. See, it's typical British summer, of course, so it's rain all the way. So why not just start at six o'clock in the morning on Centre Court and fit in as many matches as possible under the roof? Well, I'll tell you the downside of that is that I'll have to get up at about four o'clock to do some prep for commentators. Uh, I have to be there by uh, 5.15. Oh, boo-hoo. You get to go to Wimbledon and watch the best tennis players in the world. Yeah, but uh, not at six o'clock in the morning, please, bud. Okay, okay. let's readjust this. What about 11 o'clock? Yeah, I, could, I can deal with that. Yeah. So why don't they do it? Because it's historically an outdoor tournament. And I think you've, you know, we thought at the beginning of the week we were going to get more rain. And of course, that didn't transpire. So sometimes um, uh, the accuracy of the, the local weatherman isn't always spot on. Well, let's hope that's the case. Now, before we go, the issue of prize money has boringly reared its head again, so we won't dwell on it for too long. But Gilles Simon, who was recently elected onto the ATP Player Council, believes that men's tennis, and this is a quote, is really ahead of women's tennis at this stage. Uh, Once more, the men spent surely twice as much time on court as the women at the French Open. We often talk about salary equality, but I don't think it's something that works in sport. Men's tennis remains more attractive than women's tennis at this moment. Does he have a point? Uh, He does. Um, I think as well, in all sports, not only tennis, I mean, men football players earn more than women. Why? Should women earn exactly the same amount just because it's the same sport? No, I think the market dictates or you know what commodity is more valuable than another and you know irrespective of gender i think sometimes you pay more to go and see one event than another it's just the way it is and i you know my, for me the barometer is the debenture prices you're going to have a look how much you pay second week for a, a woman's day ticket versus a men's day ticket and in some cases it's three times as much so the market is telling us that they view men's tennis as a more valuable commodity than women's tennis so that's just the way it is um so what do you make of serena's argument when she says we shouldn't get paid less just because we have boobs and they don't um for me it's not about gender that's the whole point um people pay more to watch like i said to you men's football than they do women's so forget about the gender it's about the quality uh, of the product and you know men are better tennis players than women they're all right. They work harder at what they do because they're out there longer. So therefore, they uh, deserve more pay. If I hire a tax guy to come do some tax work for me, guy or girl, and the girl works for 10 hours, um, she's going to charge me accordingly. And if I have a male tax guy who only works for one hour, I'm going to pay him less. 
So you've got to take those into consideration. Um, well, no matter what, what our opinions are, Robbie, is it actually going to change? Are they going to dare no, go back? No, and definitely not. And in life, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate. And that's where I take my hats off to the WTA. They've negotiated a great pay structure for their players and they deserve every cent they get because of that fact. So lastly, Robbie Koenig, who yeah. is your player of the week? Well, for me, it has to be <laughs> Lucas Russell. What uh, transpired on centre court was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in, in my six years of commentating. I've seen great players play great matches, but I have never seen an, a rank outsider take on a legend of the sport on one of the biggest stages in our sport and overcome all kinds of adversities to pretty much clinically dispose of one of the greatest players ever to play the game. And for me, it was just absolutely jaw-dropping what Lucas Rossell was able to do in defeating Rafael Nadal. Yeah, more of that kind of drama, please. Well, thank you very much, Robbie Koenig. We'd like to hear from you. Please leave a review on iTunes, if that's where you've listened to this, telling us whereabouts in the world you're listening from. And you can tweet us at SSN Radio. For the Big Wimbledon Review, you know where to be. Back with me, Adam Bates, next week here on Tennis Weekly. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. Goodbye. The Tennis Weekly Podcast. The greatest, unquestionably, he was tonight. At skysports.com slash radio and on iTunes. And the world's best is the best on a night to remember in New York. Tennis Weekly is a Sky Sports News Radio podcast.